0: Hello, and welcome to the Biome Podcast. My name is Graham, and as always, I am your host for this episode. Firstly, I want to thank the new members that have signed up for the Biome Membership. Your contributions will be put towards Saving the Survivor's Rhino Rescue. I also want to thank everyone who has recently bought um, one of the rhino merchandise, because your um, contributions will also be put towards Saving the Survivor's Rhino Rescue. Now these amazing people have helped rescue rhinos that have been left for dead after being poached. Obviously most rhinos are killed when they're poached, but there are a few that are found in time and are able to be saved. These rhinos are invaluable um, for the genetic material as well as obviously the living being that they are. And they, These people at Saving the Survivor's Rhino Rescue attempt to rehabilitate them so that the genetic material isn't lost. They can still breed with other rhinos and they're um, kept safe from poachers for the rest of their life. That way they're still obviously helping their species. Now this episode does look at some of the darker sides of the animal kingdom. But before we dive into that, let's look at one of the most positively thought of animals in the world. And for that, I will see you in the animal spotlight. section the section in the episode where we talk about a particular animal or species group of animals um, and explore their life cycle in more detail today we're going to be looking at one that is very closely related to spring in certain ways we're going to be looking at the white stork now the white stork is a migratory bird These birds are renowned for their striking appearance and their association with newborns in popular culture, which is part of the reason why they make a good springtime discussion topic. In this episode, we will explore what the white stork is, where it can be found, and other interesting facts about this fascinating bird. The white stork is a large bird. Obviously standing almost a metre tall or about 3 feet with a long neck, long legs and a wingspan that can reach up to 2.4 metres or close on 8 feet. The adult white stork has a white body uh, with black wings and a distinctive red beak as well as red legs. The young storks are a greyish brown in colour and have shorter beaks than the adults. Now, white storks are migratory, mentioned that, but they're found across Europe, Asia and Africa. During the breeding season, which typically lasts from March to August, white storks can be found in wetlands, meadows and other open habitats where they build large nests uh, made of sticks and grass. Now, These nests are massive. They can be as big as 2 meters or 6.5 feet wide and about 1.5 meters deep or about 5 feet deep. And they're often built on top of chimneys, trees and other tall structures so they have a good view of the surrounding neighborhood. After the breeding season, white storks migrate to Africa where they spend the winter in the savannas and grasslands of sub-Saharan Africa. During their migration, white storks can travel up to 15,000 kilometers and they can fly at altitudes of up to 3,000 meters or close to 10,000 feet. The white stork is a fascinating bird and it has been the subject of many myths and legends throughout history. In many cultures, the white stork is associated with fertility and it was said that the birds brought newborn babies to families. Whether or not they believed that, another question. This association has led to the uh, tradition of placing a wooden stalk in front of the house to celebrate the birth of a child. But let's dive into the life cycle of the white stalk a bit more. The unique life cycle involves migration, breeding, and raising young. Now, The white stork's life cycle begins with their migration from their wintering grounds in sub-Saharan Africa, or at least their life cycle for the year starts uh, with their migration from the wintering grounds in sub-Saharan Africa to their breeding grounds in Europe, Asia and also parts of northern Africa. During their migration, white storks can cover up Cover up to about 15,000 kilometers or about 9,500 miles in distance. Once the white storks reach their breeding grounds, they begin their courtship and mating process. The mating season usually begins in March and lasts until May, which means they would have just started their mating season now. Or I guess we'd probably be coming close to the end of it, we'd be just over halfway. During this time though, the male storks perform an elaborate courtship display that involves clattering their beaks, um, bowing and even flapping their wings. If the female accepts the male's advances, the pair will begin building their nests together. White storks build their nests on top of tall structures such as chimneys or trees using sticks, grass and other material. As mentioned earlier, these nests are massive and can be up to 2 meters, or about 6.5 feet wide at about 1.5 or five feet, uh, 1.5 meters or five feet deep. This means that they are wide enough for me to personally lay down in, since I'm about six foot. After the nest is built, the female white stalk will lay a clutch of two to five eggs. Both parents take turns incubating the eggs for about 33 to 34 days, so just over a month. The young storks are called fledglings and they are born with greyish brown feathers and a short beak. The parents will feed the young regurgitated food for the first few weeks of their lives. As the fledglings grow though, they begin to develop white feathers and a longer beak. They start to venture out of the nest and explore the surroundings, under the watchful eye of their parents, of course. The parents will continue to feed their young until they are able to fly and catch their own food. Also, it has been noted that in a three year study, about 15% of parents were seen to um, kill the smaller chicks um, as a form of infanticide, but we're not going to touch on that too much right now. We will look um, into that more in the technical section of this episode. Now, once the fledglings are fully grown, they will leave the nest and they'll begin their own migration to their wintering grounds in sub-Saharan Africa. The young white storks will typically spend their first two years in Africa before they return to their breeding grounds to start the cycle all over again. During the breeding season, white storks engage in an elaborate mating process that leads to the building of their iconic nest and the hatching of young. Let's explore the biology and physical characteristics of the white stork a bit more. This includes its anatomy, wingspan size, and plumage colors. When it comes to anatomy, the white stork has a distinctive anatomy that allows it to fly long distances and forage for food in a variety of habitats. White storks have long necks and long legs that allow them to wade through shallow water in search of prey. They will eat almost although they will eat most small creatures from insects to reptiles and amphibians as well as rodents and even fish and they also have a wingspan that can reach about two and a half meters or about eight feet making them one of the largest bird species in the world the white stalks wings are broad and strong and they have a unique shape that allows the bird to soar effortlessly for long periods of time this is obviously very helpful when they're, lung, um, when they're going on their long migrations. Interestingly though, the Storks do not fly over the Mediterranean Sea when migrating from Europe to Africa. Instead, they will go around along the Levant or cross the, uh, across at the Straits of Gibraltar, since the updrafts of air required for them to soar are not produced over the sea. The stork's tail is also short and rounded, which helps it maneuver through the air. In terms of plumage color, the white stork's plumage is one of its most distinctive features. As the name suggests, the bird has a predominantly white body with black wings. The head and neck of the adult Uh, white stork are also white, with a small patch of bare red skin around the eyes. Juvenile white storks have a different plumage coloration. They have a grayish-brown body with black wings and a gray beak. As they mature, their feathers gradually turn white and their beaks and legs turn from gray to red. In addition to their anatomy and plumage colors, white storks have several other physical characteristics that make them quite unique. For example, the short... The short... The stork's beak is long and pointed. This allows it to catch prey and swallow small prey, such as frogs, insects, and the rodents. The white stork's legs are also a distinctive feature. They're long and slender, basically looking like two toothpicks, with pink or red skin that is covered in scales. The stork's feet have three toes pointing forward and one toe pointing backward. This obviously helps it grip onto branches and other surfaces. Interestingly, though, this is a distinctive characteristic of birds belonging to the order Passeriformes, or perching birds, although stalks belong to a different order called Chiconiformes. Now, while it is a distinctive characteristic of uh, Passeriformes, or perching birds, they're obviously not the only ones, they just generally are. It's it's a fair guess that if a bird has that, um, it's likely that it's going to be a passeriformes. If it has three toes pointing forward and one pointing back, but obviously in this case, um, the stork seem to be a exception to the rule. Now, physical characteristics alone are not responsible for their survival. There are a few other strategies that the white stork employs to survive. The white stork has several behavior patterns that has helped it survive its environment. For example, the stork is known for its uh, strong parental instincts and will fiercely protect its offspring from predators. This obviously helps it grow or the population grow. However, as mentioned earlier, they will commit infanticide. So that sort of evens this one out. Um, but they do have foraging strategies. The white stork has developed several foraging strategies that allow it to find food in a variety of environments. For example, the stork will often follow tractors and other farming equipment in search of prey that has been disturbed by the machinery. The stork also forages in wetlands and other shallow water habitats where they can find a variety of prey from amphibians to insects um, to likely rodents of some kind as well. Uh, and possibly even fish. These strategies are a good start at fighting their main threats. Let's look into those a little bit. Unfortunately, the white stalk population is facing several threats that are putting its survival at risk. Some of the major ones are population decline, One of the primary threats facing the white stork is population decline. This decline is caused by a number of factors, including habitat loss, which I'm going to look into a little bit in a second, pollution, as well as hunting. And as human populations grow and expand, they often encroach on the habitats of wild white storks, destroying the wetlands and grasslands that the birds rely on for food and shelter. Now I mentioned I was going to look at habitat destruction a little bit more habitat destruction is obviously a major threat facing the white stork population the destruction of wetlands grasslands and other habitats has a devastating impact on the bird's ability to find food find mates and raise their young additionally the loss of habitat can lead to increased competition for resources among the surviving population which further reduces the chances of survival So while the Stork has some fascinating adaptations, there are still some risks for reasons outside of their control, which is very sad because the White Stork has had a major effect on Western mythology and culture. The White Stork has captured the imagination of people around the world for centuries. In many cultures and mythologies, the White Stork is considered a symbol of good luck, fertility, and renewal. Let's look at the good luck portion. The white stork is considered a symbol of good luck and prosperity in many cultures. For example, in Germany, it's believed that having a white stork nest on your roof will bring good fortune to your household. Some, in fact, this belief is held so much that some people actually build platforms on their ceilings so that white storks will hopefully use it as a nesting ground. In some parts of Africa, the stork is believed to bring rain, which is essential for the survival of crops and livestock, and likely because the stork arrives just as the rainy seasons are starting. In some cultures, the white stork is considered a symbol of renewal and rebirth. In ancient Egyptian mythology, for example, the white stork was associated with the goddess Isis, which was the goddess of motherhood, fertility and rebirth. The bird was also believed to be a symbol of the cycle of life, death, and regeneration. Now, while the white stork is generally regarded as a positive symbol in many cultures and mythologies, there are a few negative connotations that have been associated with the bird in certain traditions. One example of a negative connotation is found in Greek mythology, where the white stork is associated with a tragic story. According to legend, the nymph Gerana boasted that she was more beautiful than the goddess Hera. As punishment, Hera turned her into a white stork. In some versions of the story, the white stork is seen as a reminder of Gerana's arrogance and pride, and serves as a cautionary tale about the dangers of vanity. In some cultures, the white stork is believed to be a symbol of death or illness, and its presence is considered a bad omen. It is worth noting, however, that these negative connotations are relatively rare, and the white stork is by far overwhelmingly viewed in a positive and auspicious symbol, or viewed as a positive and auspicious symbol, in most cultures and mythologies. In general, the bird is associated with themes of fertility, good luck, and renewal, and is celebrated as a powerful and beautiful creature. I think we should end the animal spotlight section there. Stay tuned though for the technical section. Now it is time for the technical section. This section we usually use uh, or reserve to talk about concepts, ideas, or theories behind zoology. Um, Not necessarily exploring a particular animal, but rather looking at concepts or um, ideas that bring together the whole of zoology. In this particular episode, we're going to be looking at one that is a bit morbid and a little disturbing, but it is a part of nature. It's actually found in numerous species, and so it is definitely worth one looking into. Today we're going to be looking at siblicide. Now, if you're not sure what siblicide is, it's a uh, it uses two words. One comes from sibling, the sib portion comes from sibling, and the side obviously comes from homicide. Basically, it is the concept of um, siblings killing each other. Now, what is sibling uh siblicide and how common is it within the animal kingdom? It is a bit of a morbid discussion, but one that needs to be looked at. So, sibling rivalry is often the cause of siblicide. For instance, some in some bird species, the younger chick in the brood is weaker and is less likely to survive. To increase the chances of its own survival, the older chick may become aggressive towards the younger sibling, resulting in siblicide. It is actually, it has been noted in um, white stalks, which is part of the reason why we're talking about it today. Infanticide though, is another related behavior that is observed in many animal species. In this case, it's the adult animal killing a young individual. In some cases, this behavior is driven by the desire to eliminate potential competition for resources. For example, male lions have been observed killing cubs in a pride to increase their own chances of reproducing with that lioness. Generally, this happens when a male lion takes over a new pride. It will um, attempt to kill the um, the young cubs if they were fathered or sired by a different male and that then can bring the female back into estrus so that the male can then procreate with that lioness. Siblicide and infanticide are not limited to birds and mammals. These behaviors have been observed in reptiles, fish and even insects. For for example, in some species of snakes, the larger, more dominant offspring will eat their smaller sibling shortly after hatching. Siblicide and infanticide um, have important ecological and evolutionary implications. In species with these behaviors, or where these behaviors are common, they can help to ensure the survival of the strongest offspring, increasing the overall fitness of the species. We'll talk more about that in a bit though. However, in cases where siblicide and infanticide result in significant reductions in population size, they can make species more vulnerable to extinction. Let's have a bit more of a detailed look into the different types of siblicide and how they manifest themselves in nature. Now, before we do that, let's look into one of the theories. So kin selection theory, when practiced to the extreme, is a popular explanation for the occurrence of siblicide in nature. According to this theory, uh, organisms are more likely to exhibit behaviors that benefit their close relatives. You'd think that that would mean their siblings, but not always as this increases the likelihood of their shared genes being passed to future generations. So that's why they um, exhibit behaviours that benefit the uh, the close relatives. Siblicide can thus be seen as a strategy for ensuring the survival of the fittest sibling and it gives the fittest youngster the best chance of passing on their genes. Now, Siblicide can occur or usually occurs when the act of killing a sibling is beneficial to the survival of the killer. This is often observed in species where resources are scarce, such as in some bird species, where the stronger chick will kill the weaker sibling and increase its own chances of survival. Another such example has been seen in some species of sharks, where the strongest embryo will consume its siblings within the womb. Since sharks are ovoviviparous, they hatch out of the egg within the womb of the mother and they will then get born alive. But while they're in the womb, they will um, eat some of the, the siblings. Now, even though the embryo will consume its siblings in the womb, it does give it a better chance of survival in that it um, allows the pup or the young shark to have more resources. It does, however, reduce its own chances of survival. And the reason it has a negative effect on the surviving shark's chance of survival is because there are less babies born, meaning that there is a greater predator to shark-pup ratio. So shark pups, when they're born, aren't cared for by the mothers. They are, however, left to their own devices, and because of that, they have to navigate the world of larger fish who will gladly um, eat the shark pups. In boobies, which are a type of seabird, High testosterone in the chick is associated with the fight behavior. Only under very favorable environmental conditions do all the chicks survive. Usually, the last emerging chick is pecked to death, which is unfortunate for that individual. Now what causes animals to kill their siblings? Let's examine some of the reasons. The reason behind this behavior, or the reasons behind this behavior are complex and multifaceted. But some of the main factors that contribute to siblicide include parental favoritism, resource competition and overcrowding. Now in parental favoritism, when parental favoritism is a factor, it can contribute to siblicide in many animal species. When parents provide preferential treatment to one offspring over another, it can create a sense of rivalry and competition between the siblings. This can lead to aggression and ultimately siblicide. For example, in some bird species, the parents may favor the larger, stronger chick, leading to the weaker chick becoming being attacked and killed by its sibling. Just for the attention that it does receive, even though it's less than the the other sibling or the larger sibling, the larger sibling may still feel that it is it deserves all the attention. So why do parents not intervene in this situation? They're, is no parental benefit to intervention because the parental fitness is best served by having fewer well-nourished young that survive rather than more uh, less adjusted or less nourished weaker um, young In this situation though, fitness of the parents is being measured by how productive they are and how many of their young make it to adulthood. Remember, that is the ultimate goal, is how your young can survive, or what is the best way your young can um, survive to procreate on their own. And so if that means having a more well-nourished, but fewer um, youngsters, but more well-nourished, then that's the way that the parents will, will um, focus. Resource competition is another factor that can contribute to siblicide. When siblings compete for limited resources, such as food, water or nesting space, they may resort to aggressive behaviors towards each other. In some cases, this competition can become so intense that it can result in siblicide. As we mentioned, subshark species, the strongest embryo, will consume its siblings in the womb to ensure it has access to all the available resources. Another reason is overcrowding, and overcrowding can contribute to siblicide in some animal species. When animals are forced to live in close quarters with their siblings, it can create a stressful and competitive environment. This can lead to increased aggression and ultimately, siblicide. For example, in some rodent species, overcrowding can lead to increased aggression between siblings. This results in the death of one or even more siblings. Now, siblicide sibilis- is a complex phenomenon that can occur in a variety of animal species, as we've already touched on. There's no one-size-fits-all explanation of why animals kill their siblings. But let's look at the impact of siblicide on animal populations and ecosystems. Now, while the occurrence of siblicide may seem like a natural part of the animal kingdom, it can disrupt population dynamics and even destabilize ecosystems. Population dynamics refer to the way in which populations of animals change over time. So, siblicide can have a significant impact on these dynamics as it can result in the loss of one or more individuals from a population depending on the size of the population, even losing just one individual can have a massive effect in that particular population, but it can also have a uh, ripple effect on the population of other species around it. It can affect the availability of resources and the overall reproductive success of the remaining individuals, especially higher up in the food chain as you go. Generally, The higher you go in the food chain, the fewer the number of individuals within a population. So when one does die or is killed, it can have a greater effect on that population as a whole. Another example of this is in some bird species. Siblicide can result in the death of one of the offspring, leaving only one to survive. In this particular situation, you've lost 50% of... um, of the population or you can lose 50% of the population if this occurs in every nest. So this can have an impact on the overall reproductive success of the parents as their um, fitness is now halved. They have fewer offspring to raise and care for. In turn this can affect the population dynamics of the species as it may result in fewer individuals reaching adulthood and reproducing. Siblicite can also have an impact on ecosystem stability. Ecosystems are complex networks of living and non-living things that are interconnected and interdependent. When one component of an ecosystem is disrupted, it can have a ripple effect on the entire system. Siblicite can disrupt the natural balance of an ecosystem by removing individuals from the population which can affect the availability of resources and the interactions between different species. An example of this is in some predator species. Siblicide can result in the loss of one or more individuals from the population. This can affect the predator-prey dynamics of the the ecosystem as there are fewer predators to control the populations of prey species and generally speaking prey species will um, procreate very quickly. In turn, this can result in overgrazing and overpopulation of certain species, which can have a negative impact on the overall health of the ecosystem depending on the number of individuals killed. An extreme case of this was seen with the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone during the mid-90s. The deer in Yellowstone, prior to the reintroduction of the wolves, the deer had overrun. They had no fear, they had no... Um, concerns about where to eat and they were overgrazing much of Yellowstone. With the reintroduction of wolves, the deer species have a tendency now to leave the meadows and the open areas alone and not frequent them, which means that grasses are able to grow back. The, um, and I think we touched on this in the Keystone Species podcast episode, I can't remember which episode that is, but um reintroducing the wolves actually had such a massive effect on the um, population as a whole or the ecosystem within Yellowstone as a whole That the river that flows through Yellowstone actually diverted due to the wolves being um, reintroduced. Because as the wolves were reintroduced, the deer species stopped feeding in the meadows and the low-lying areas around the river. And the grasses were able to grow and stabilize the banks again, which therefore um, changed the actual course of the river itself. So... Making sure that you have a balance between predators and prey species is always a huge, um, hugely important aspect. So for example, um, it can have a ripple effect on the entire system. So supercite can f- disrupt the natural balance which we've just spoken about. In some predator species, side can result in the loss of one or more individuals. This can re- affect the predator-prey dynamics in the ecosystem. In conclusion though, siblicide can have a significant impact on animal populations and ecosystems. It can disrupt the population dynamics, affecting the availability of resources and the overall reproductive success of population. It can also destabilize ecosystems by disrupting the natural balance of the predator-prey dynamics. So if there's no predators, which generally speaking, the predator numbers are fewer than the prey numbers because the predators obviously Feed off the prey throughout their life, so um, most most ecosystems or habitats cannot carry as many predators. Now, if you destabilize ecosystems with by losing a significant portion of the predators, the prey are obviously going to be able to procreate at a, a much higher rate or survive to a much later stage. In which case, the population of the prey item may explode. But as a bit of a recap for this um, section, after examining the topic of siblicide in nature in several ways, which we've done, it becomes apparent that siblicide is more widespread than some people may have thought. It's not only limited to a specific species or family of animals and can even occur in some of the most seemingly loving and nurturing animal parents. It can also occur in every major grouping of animals, from fish to amphibians, to reptiles, to birds, and yes, even mammals. One of the most significant factors that contribute to siblicide is resource competition. Animals in the wild have to compete for resources such as food, water, and territory. In situations where resources are limited or scarce, the competition can be intense, and siblicide can be an effective way for the strongest sibling to secure the resources needed for survival. Another cause of siblicide, if you remember, is parental favoritism. In some cases, animal parents may show favoritism towards one offspring over the other, which can lead to sibling rivalry and ultimately siblicide. This can occur in situations where one offspring is stronger or more aggressive than the others, or simply because, the parents, uh, because of the parents' preferences. While siblicide can be seen as a violent and disturbing behavior, it is essential to recognize that it is a natural part of the animal kingdom. Siblicide is not always a negative behavior, except obviously to the sibling that is being killed. Then yes, it is admittedly always negative. But if we look at it as a population, um, as a population or at a population level or a societal level or a ecosystem level, um, it's not always negative. In, like all things in nature, it can have benefits to the young that is doing the killing. For example, in species where resources are scarce, siblicide can help ensure the survival of the stronger offspring, which can increase their chances of reproducing and passing on their genes to the next generation. Now, siblicide can also have negative effects on animal populations and ecosystems. As we saw earlier, siblicide can disrupt population dynamics resulting in a decrease in the population size and even reproductive success of the population as a whole. It can destabilize ecosystems by disrupting predator-prey dynamics and other interactions. To better understand the causes and effects of siblicide in nature, animal behavior studies have been conducted to shed light on this behavior. These studies provide insights into the reasoning or or the reasons behind Siblicide and help us to understand its impact on animal populations and ecosystems. Siblicide is a complex behavior that is influenced by a variety of factors, resource competition, parental favoritism. It can have adaptive benefits in some situations but it can also be negative, much like everything else in nature, both positive and negative. It's neither it's neither good nor evil. Now understanding the causes and effects of suicide is essential for understanding the natural world and the delicate balance that exists within it. Animal behaviour studies play a crucial role in shedding light on this behaviour and help us to better appreciate the complexity of the natural world. Well I think we will end this episode there if you want more wildlife content be sure to check out our website at thebiomepodcast.com and consider becoming a member the majority of all profits go towards saving the survivors rhino rescue feel free to check them out at savingthesurvivors.org there will be a lot more content and a community of like-minded zoology enthusiasts on there as well as giveaways photo contests and expert q and a's Be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well and get a free copy of our bird watchers log. A printable form to log all your bird sightings in an easy to put binder. I'm actually using it not only for bird watching but also for um, the different animal species that I find. Recently there was a wolverine spotted near where I live um, and I'm hoping to go out and see if I can spot the the critter. Uh, I use it myself obviously, it's the Watchers log and it's a great place to attach pictures or drawings depending on your preference. The newsletters also go out once a month and contain highlights and surprises so they're not flooding your inbox thankfully. Also, if you or anyone you know enjoys writing be sure to consider writing a post for the guest writer section. You may get uh, to be on the podcast even, so have a look at the site and then read the tips to, on writing a compelling article, as well as how to get in touch with our editors. Lots of new things, so be sure to stick around and follow us on social media at biome.media. And don't forget, we love hearing from you, so please do keep in touch. For now though, we will be back in two weeks with episode eight. If you want to hear the podcast before it's released to the public, sign up for that membership and you can comment and listen in while it is being recorded. Until next time, though, remember to always ask questions. It is the foundation of science, after all.